from Hebrews uh, over the summer, uh, and we're going to be doing just a, a short series called Growing Together, looking at the, the ways in which God seeks to bring maturity to his people, to the church. Uh, and, and it's my guess that every Christian, including every Christian in this room, wants to grow in their faith. Like, if you're a Christian, you're, you're not like, ah, I'm all right, actually. I just, I'm, I'm cool like this. I think if you're a Christian, there's a sense in which you, you want to grow in your faith. You want to grow to maturity. You want to know him more and know him at work in your life more. And in his kindness, God has a plan for your growth. He's at work in you, if you're a Christian, by his spirit to sanctify you. And we can be confident of that because he he says it in his word, actually, in Philippians 1, verse 6, we read this. He who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Christ. He's going to finish the work he began at the, the point that he saved you. And what is that work? That work is making you more like Jesus. But how? How's he going to do that? Well, by his spirit, we read that. But it, it, it doesn't just kind of happen to you automatically in some way. No, he invites us to partner with him. And actually, most of the time, it's not kind of weird, ethereal somethingness happening to you. God uses very ordinary means to shape us into the likeness of Jesus to grow us, to mature us. And over the summer, we're going to look at some of those means, some of those ways that God uses to grow us to maturity, that he's at work in our lives for our good and for his glory. Now, this series, unlike most of what we do together on Sundays, um, is going to be thematic So we're looking at a theme rather than a particular passage. Now, if you're with us regularly, you'll know what we normally do is we will take a book of the Bible and we'll preach through it from beginning to end because we believe that this is God's word. And actually, if we just pick and choose the verses we want, then actually we can easily end up just kind of shaping things around our preferences and our kind of pet subjects and, and, and the things we would want to say rather than the whole counsel of Scripture. And so we actually generally, we want to take books of the Bible in their entirety and work through them because then it doesn't give me the opportunity to just pick my pet subjects uh, or us as a team to go, this is our particular hobby horse. We're going to ride this one. Actually, we go, what does God's word say? We can't duck it. It's here. It comes up, and it means sometimes we get to passages, like some of those in Hebrews, where we go, oh man, this is going to take some head scratching for a minute, but we don't want to avoid it. We want to embrace it and say, God, this is your word for us. It's for our good, for our health, and for our maturing. But this series we are going to take slightly differently. We're going to, it's thematic. That doesn't mean that it's unbiblical, (laughs) okay? And I hope you'll see as we go this afternoon, although we're not rooted in one specific text, what I'm going to say is rooted in Scripture thoroughly. And I would encourage you, check out what I'm saying this afternoon with what you know of God's Word. 
And if I say something that you think, that doesn't match what I think this says in here, then challenge me on it. Talk to me about it. Engage with me on it. Okay? Is that right? Good. Well, we're going to start today with the, the first means which God uses, I think, for our maturity as believers. And it's, it's a big one. It's the church. Because the church actually is the context for all of the other things that we're going to look at in the coming weeks and where they are outworked in our lives. And I guess it's my aim or hope today that I might somehow, God might by his spirit, use me to stir in you a greater love for the church, a greater appreciation of the church. You know, the first thing we need to know about the church, and I think this should do something for our affections, is that Jesus loves the church. And true Christianity is all about becoming more like Jesus. The work that God is committed to completing in you, that he started is making you more like Christ. We read in Romans 8, verse 29, For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son. That's saying, Christians, God chose you, knew you before the beginning of time. He chose you and he predestined you, he decided and determined that he would conform you or shape you into the image of Christ, that you would be made like his son. And so if Jesus loves the church, then mature Christians should love the church too. That's logical, isn't it? Yet Jesus loves the church as Christians. God is at work in us to make us more like Jesus Therefore, mature Christians should love the church too. I think there's a wonderful upward spiral that happens here. And that's because God uses the church in his kindness, as we'll see in the coming weeks, to help us to grow more like Jesus. And as we grow more like Jesus, we grow in affection for the church. Does that make sense? Now, the church is God's plan A for mission and maturity. But when I say the church, I wonder for you what springs to mind. Some of us might instantly think buildings. Probably not, if you're here, though. That's not going to be the first thing. You're going to go, it's a climbing sensor. No, not church. Some of us will instantly think to kind of images of Church of England, the Catholic Church, of clergy or ministers or meetings. Probably lots of us might think of meetings. Weddings, funerals. You might also somewhere in there think of scandal, abuse, deceit, hypocrisy. There are all kinds of things that may come to mind when I say the church. And the church, as we can often think of it, and certainly how it's portrayed in the media, seems pretty hard to love, doesn't it? And you might hear me say, Jesus loves the church. And 
although you might not say it out loud, you're probably thinking, it's a good job he does, because no one else will. If you believe what the media would have to say and the things we often ourselves sometimes believe. But that's simply not how it should be. And so, firstly, I want us to pick through some of our misconceptions about the church. And then we're going to build up again, see what the Bible has to say. See, the Bible has no concept of the church as a building or simply a meeting or series of meetings to attend. The church, as Scripture portrays it, is much, much more profound than that. It's a people who are so inextricably connected together because of the hope they have in Jesus, because the new life they have in Jesus, because they have been made new in him that they could be likened to a body, so much so that if one part hurts, they all hurt. A community of people who are committed to God and committed to one another, who spend time together, read the Bible, pray together, care for one another, invest in one another's lives, and who help one another find hope, purpose, and meaning in the person and work of Jesus Christ, who are committed to each other's growth, development, and maturity. And if you read the New Testament, I'm confident that you will find all of those things in abundance there. Now, many of you would have heard that kind of thing before. You might even yourself say things like, the church isn't a building, it's the people. The challenge, though, is this. Our behavior reflects what we really believe. And so I guess... Right at the outset of this, I want to ask, does your life and the way you speak about church say that you believe it's a meeting or a series of meetings that you attend or don't attend, depending on your preference and what suits you, or does it reflect that church is a family, a people who are on a mission together to be disciples, followers of Jesus, who make disciples You see, Jesus didn't die on a cross so that we might start attending a service on Sundays. He didn't. (laughs) He didn't give his life for you so that you might just attend a service. He came to save you, to invite you into a living relationship with him, and he commissions us then to live as salt and light, to live for the glory of God and to point others to him. Jesus' command to his disciples, if you read it in Scripture, wasn't invite people to a meeting. I don't know if you noticed that. He said, go and make disciples. Before we go any further, though, I want to be clear on this. Please don't misunderstand me. I'm not seeking to downplay the importance of gathering to worship and hear scripture read together on Sundays. I'm not downplaying the importance of life groups or other gatherings. In fact, scripture has a lot to say about the importance of the gathering. The the word we often have translated church actually means gathering. (laughs) There is something that you cannot escape in scripture that 
God's people gather. (laughs) We're instructed to do so. In Hebrews, we're commanded, don't give up meeting together as some are in the habit of doing. You can't escape it when you read the New Testament that the church gather in local congregations with elders who pastor and preach the word of God. But we do need to see that a Sunday service is not all there is. If we just stop at a Sunday service, we miss the point. So here are a couple of the most amazing ways that the church is spoken about in God's word. The first is we read in scripture that the church is the body of Christ. You've probably heard most of these before, but I want you to let them sink in again this afternoon in a new way. The church, God's people, is the body of Christ. That's quite something, isn't it? In Ephesians 1, verse 22 to 23, we read this. God placed all things under his, that's Jesus's, feet and appointed him to be the head over everything for the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills everything in every way. That's stunning. In 1 Corinthians 12, Verse 27, we read this. Now you, Paul writing to the church at Corinth says, now you are the body of Christ and each one of you is a part of it. If you're a Christian, you are connected to other Christians, an integral part of the body of Christ on earth. You know, Jesus so identifies with the church that he himself calls it his body. In Acts 9, when we read about Saul on his way to persecute a group of Christians, he encounters the resurrected Christ. And Jesus says to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Staggering. And it's why it's not possible to say, as some people try to, I love Jesus, but I can't stand the church. If you've ever heard anyone say that, I've heard it lots of times. I'm sick of the church. I hate the church. I love Jesus, all for Jesus, but I hate the church. You, you can't say that if you've understood what Scripture has to say about the church as the body of Christ. You see, you can hate sin, and Jesus does. You can hate sin in the church, hypocrisy. Those things that we see that they're not right. But it simply isn't possible to truly love Jesus and hate the church. In fact, it's not actually possible to truly love Christ and be indifferent towards the church. The church is the body of Christ. And as such, it's the way he's chosen to reveal his glory on earth and in heaven. You know that? In Ephesians 3, verse 10 and 11, we read this. Say, his intent was that now, through the church, the manifold wisdom of God should be made known 
to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly realms, according to his eternal purposes that he accomplished in Christ Jesus our Lord. Paul writes in his letter to the church in Ephesus that God's intention and purpose is to display his wisdom and glory in the heavenly realms through the church, through his people, through his body. This should make a difference to how we think of the church, how we think of actually our part in that. So I think we can be inclined to, and I've had conversations with people that go along these lines, we can be inclined to think, like, wouldn't it be amazing if Jesus walked the earth today, right now? Like if Jesus was out there now on the streets of Wokingham, healing people and bringing hope to people, just imagine the impact. It'd be amazing. And, and it would be amazing. Like, don't get me wrong. But I think when we think like that, we kind of miss the point, which is that we are his body, that he has filled us with his spirit and sent us to make disciples, to speak hope and life to people. We're his body. See, Jesus is no longer physically as a man walking the earth. But he's filled his people by his spirit. And he sent us with his authority to make disciples, to continue that which he was doing. We, we read, don't we, at the start of the book of Acts. In, in my former book, so in the book of Luke, I wrote about all that Christ Jesus began to do and teach. The inference being this book of Acts, the story of the church, the birth of the church, is a continuation of what Jesus would do on earth through his people, his body, the church, you and I. From the moment he ascended until the moment he returns to wrap up all of history, we sang earlier about the fact that every knee will bow before him. From the moment he ascended to heaven until the moment he returns and every knee bows before him, the way that the vast, 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 overwhelming majority of people are going to encounter Jesus and come to saving faith is by encountering his body, the church. It's by someone like you <laughs> pointing them to him. It's by someone like you showing them what he's like. It should follow that encountering Christians results in encountering Jesus. When we're living the way Jesus lived and speaking the message he spoke, then we will help people encounter him. It's what we're called to. For the church is Jesus' body. It's also his building project. This is such a great truth. This is one of my favorite truths about the church of Christ. In Matthew 16, verse 18, Jesus says to his friend Peter, just before he 
goes. He says to him, I will build my church and the gates of hell will not overcome it. It is so good to know that Jesus is building his church. and We, we find that truth repeated again and again through the New Testament scriptures that we are, as Christians, being built together by Jesus as living stones sat alongside one another for our good and for his glory. It's also a very freeing truth. (laughs) We're not building his church, and we can't. He's building us together. Now, of course, we want to see the church grow globally. We want to see the church grow locally. We want to see the church grow because it means people are coming to saving faith in Jesus. Like, or maybe I'm just speaking for myself. I want to see the church grow. I want to see people saved. I want to see people find hope and life and freedom in the finished work of Christ Jesus. And my guess, actually, is that you do too. In fact, for lots of you, because I've talked to you, I know that's your desire. But do we believe we can grow the church? Or make anyone a Christian? No. Of course we can't. It's God's church and it's Jesus' building project. He's asked us to follow him and encourage others to do the same. We submit to him as Lord. And we encourage others to do the same. Ultimately, we don't build the church. That's not our responsibility. But we preach the word of God and we keep pointing people to Christ with our words and with our actions, knowing that he builds. Paul, a first century Christian leader, wrote these words in 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 6 through 8. He said, I planted the seed. He's talking about the church at Corinth that Jesus is building there for his glory. He says, I planted the seed. Apollos, another leader, watered it, but God has been making it grow. So neither the one who plants nor the one who waters is anything, but only God who makes things grow. The one who plants and the one who waters have one purpose, and they will each be rewarded according to their labor, for we are co-workers in God's service. You are God's field, God's building. In other words, Paul's saying, I shared the good news of Jesus with you so that you might come to saving faith. And Apollos kept pointing you to Christ, proclaiming the good news to you. But God caused you to come alive in him. And God is bringing you to maturity. And God is adding others to your number. You're God's field, God's building, his work. You know, I find this truth incredibly encouraging and challenging in equal measure. Because when things are hard, I'm really inclined to like this truth. Oh, Lord, I'm so grateful that it's not on me, that you're building your church. 
And that's good. But I think it's good to be honest as well. And when things are going well, when the church is growing, I find this truth harder, actually, because I like to think I've had something to do with it. (laughs) I like to think it's because of what I've done, but Paul says here, yeah, I planted, Apollos watered, but the one who planted and the one who watered, neither of them are anything but only God who makes things grow. The fact is, the church is God's workmanship created in Christ Jesus is not the result of a person's idea or effort it's his and when we understand that it's God's work and not ours it frees us and it brings the glory to him and not to us when things are tough it's a source of great comfort and when things are good it confronts our pride and humbles us Keeps us looking to him and thanking him and worshipping him. It's his building project. I'm so grateful for that truth. But building sites can be messy places. I once read someone write about the church as God's building like this. They said, have you ever lived in a building site? I know some of you have actually. As we once extended our house, and the noise was unbelievable. The dust was everywhere. The mud was walked through the house on wet days. It was altogether a most inconvenient place to live. But it was worth it, because we had a vision for the end product. And church is like that. So often it looks a mess. Sometimes it is a mess. But God has chosen to live in it while he builds it and extends it. He's prepared for the inconvenience. Are you? It's a good reminder and a good challenge, right? See, God gathers us together. Different people, different backgrounds, different struggles, All of us actually broken in different ways. We find hope, new life in the finished work of Jesus. But then we're not a finished product straight away, are we? Each one of us. We still struggle with sin. We still got the consequences and baggage of past sins to work through and find healing and freedom from. And when we come together, that can be a bit messy. We hurt one another at times. We rub up against one another. We frustrate one another. In our sin, we hurt one another. But actually in his wisdom, God's brought us together for our growth, for our maturity, and for his glory. You know, I, I marvel at the way God chooses to put people together who wouldn't otherwise be together. One of, one of my favorite things that Jesus said to his disciples, which we read in John's Gospel, he said, 
they'll know you're my disciples because of your love for one another. And I think we can read that in like a really nice, woolly kind of like, oh, it's just really cozy. Like, and people will see like how, how lovely it is that you all get along so well and it's so chummy and woo. And, and they'll know you're my disciples. But, but when we read it like that, we completely miss who Jesus' disciples were. Fishermen who basically dropped out of school. That's why they were fishermen. They didn't make the grade. Zealots, religious zealots. A tax collector who the zealot literally would have wanted to kill because he was working for the enemy. Jesus took these guys who actually in the natural would have hated one another, would have wound one another up. There would have been friction, misunderstanding. Like It's not a pretty picture, humanly speaking. But Christ puts them together. He says, you're my body. You're my building project. And they're going to know you're my disciples because you love one another. In spite of your differences, in spite of your brokenness, in spite of your mess, in spite of your frustrations with one another, you love one another. Because you're my body. Because you have a common hope in me. Because each one of you knows that actually you're saved, not by works, but by grace. That you're loved by the Father, not because you've done anything to earn it, but because of what Christ has done on our behalf. United in our common need of a saviour that levels us. Make no mistake, he's building his church. It's beautiful. And we're invited to play our part, to use the gifts he's given us to build others up, to serve, to give out of what he's generously given to us, to encourage one another. Do you know, even the times that we frustrate one another in God's wisdom, it's for our good, so that we might grow in patience, so that we might have opportunity to exercise love towards one another. You notice the fruit of the Spirit? Love, joy, Peace, patience, forbearance, gentleness, self-control, kindness. Like if you, <laughs> you have to be gentle when someone's winding you up. <laughs> you need to exercise self-control when you're in community with others. Yeah? The fruit of the Spirit's evidenced in community. We might not see fully yet amidst the chaos and the dust, but we can see there are glimmers of beauty everywhere in the church as his building project. Different generations, different backgrounds, different nations coming together, loving one another because we've been first loved by him. And these glimmers of beauty point us forward 
to our eternal hope. And the Bible gloriously gives us the end of the story and helps us to see the beauty of the church, what the finished article looks like. Because the church is Jesus' body and it's Jesus' building project. But the church is also Jesus' bride. In the last book of the Bible, in Revelation, we find an account that we've already talked about today, of the wrapping up of all of this that we now see and know and the beginning of a new creation, new heavens and a new earth. And in this wrapping up, Jesus comes for his people, for his bride. We read in Revelation 19, verses 6 and 8, these words. I heard what sounded like a great multitude, like the roar of rushing waters, like loud peals of thunder shouting hallelujah for the lord god almighty reigns let us rejoice and be glad and give him glory for the wedding of the lamb has come and his bride that's the church has made herself ready fine linen bright and clean was given her to wear what's this bride like She's a people, a great multitude that no one could count from every tribe, every nation, every people, every language. You can read about it in Revelation chapter 7. Human history climaxes not with a coronation or a graduation, but with a wedding, with Jesus marrying his bride, the church. It's the high point of human history by calling the church his bride and choosing a wedding to usher in the new eternal age, Jesus communicates his unmatched affection for his bride, for the church. If we truly grasp what that says about the importance of the church to Jesus, I think it would have a truly transforming effect on us. Ephesians 5, verse 25 through 27, we read these words. In in Paul writing to the church at Ephesus, actually instructions for husbands and wives as a picture of Christ and his bride, the church. He says, husbands, love your wives just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her to make her holy cleansing her by the washing with water through the word and to present her to himself as a radiant church without stain or wrinkle or any other blemish but holy and blameless. Christ is to his people the ultimate husband and he sees in the midst of our mess and insecurities his image. He loves us and works in us by his spirit through the circumstances of our life to call out and draw out the beauty of his image in us that one day the church will be presented as a spotless bride. You know, you can establish how valuable something is to someone by how much they're prepared to pay in order to get it. Yeah? You know what something is worth to someone, how valuable it is to them, by how much they're prepared to pay to get it. People pay crazy sums of money for things that other people think seem worthless. Like 
collectors, certain collectibles. And it's eye-watering what some people will pay for a stamp. It's like a little square of paper. Seriously? In Ephesians 5, we read that Jesus gave himself up for his bride. Literally gave himself, his life, completely. In Acts 20, verse 28, Paul charges the elders in the local church to be shepherds of the church of God, which he brought with his own blood. Jesus paid the ultimate price for the church. He shed his blood, gave his life for her. No, no greater price has ever been paid for anything in all of history. This was the life of Christ Jesus, the eternal son, the perfect life, the son of God, given for us. If the church is this valuable to Jesus, shouldn't it be so valuable to us? If the church is this important to Jesus, wouldn't it be a huge mistake for us to be indifferent and even at times hostile towards and critical of the church? It would. I want to exhort you to love the church. Not in a flimsy, emotional way, not, not in a way that means we gloss over or excuse and bury sin or hurt caused. That's not what it means to love the church. I'm not saying just like everything that everyone has ever done in the name of Christ or in an institution called the church, we should go, yes, it's all brilliant, we love it all. No, 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 no. We call out sin, we don't excuse it and bury it. We seek to lovingly restore people who've fallen into sin, who've stepped into error. But we see the church for who she really is, the bride of Christ, the one who he's coming back to claim. That's a, a global reality throughout all of time and history. Every Christian who's ever lived, every person who's ever put their trust in Christ Jesus for the forgiveness of sins is part of his body, his bride. We're united together with them. Saints past, present, and future around the globe. It's a, it's a glorious reality. Different nations, tribes, tongues, people. We're his bride. We're his body. We're his building project. But it isn't just a global, through all times, kind of abstract reality. See, the church always has and always will have local gatherings, communities of believers who, who mirror what's happening on a global scale in their local context. Who say, I'm part of that, and I'm so glad I'm part of that. And because I'm part of that, because God's joined me to these brothers and sisters around the world, 
I want to meet with the brothers and sisters who I can meet with right now. See, one day I'm going to be united with them and with my Lord for all eternity in heaven. It's going to be glorious. (laughs) Surrounding his throne in worship, it's going to be glorious. But right now I'm eager to gather with those who I can, who I live near. (laughs) I'm eager to exercise the gifts together that God's given me for the good of others and for his glory. And so when we talk about loving the church, when we see the church for who she really is, then actually that should lead us to commit to a local church. And whether that's here at Foundation or elsewhere, I actually don't mind. I'm going to qualify that in a minute. But I want to say don't dither between churches. Don't dip in and out depending on what and when suits you. Don't pick and mix, but commit to a family of people who, who will know you, who over time will speak into your life consistently, who actually as you get to know one another well enough, you're able to be vulnerable with about your struggles, about the, the ways in which you're fighting temptation, who will stand with you and pray for you and support you, who will love you enough to actually Speak into your life when they see sin. The global church is beautiful, and I hope you've got a fresh appreciation of that, but our part in the global has to be worked out day to day in local, accountable communities where the Bible is taught and disciples are made as each person plays their part and uses the gifts God has given them for the good of others and the glory of God. That's what we're here for. And so when I say... Whether it's here or elsewhere, I don't mind. I do mind. (laughs) I mind in as much as I would love you to commit to a local church. In fact, you must if you're a Christian. I I think that's inescapable when you read the Bible. I'd love you to commit here. But if not here, then I want you to make sure you look for these things. You need to find a community where there is accountability, where people are actually seeking to build relationship with one another so that they know what's going on in one another's lives so they can support one another and speak the truths of the gospel into one another's lives. You need to find a community where the Bible is taught, where where people actually open scripture and don't just read it, but say, how can we submit our lives to this? How can we live in obedience to the revelation of God's word? And find a community where people are encouraged to play their part, where people are encouraged to use the gifts God's given them for the good of others. See, God, we read a lot in 1 Corinthians about the gifts in the body that God's given, but they're given for purpose. They're given for the building up, for the maturity, actually, of the saints. It's the New Testament norm and expectation. They don't look for a church community or selection of church communities that will just meet your needs or suit your preferences, but find one where the Bible is taught and engage. Ask how you can help. Ask how you can use your gifts. Ask how you can play your part in the family. 
And maybe that's here and maybe that's elsewhere. And that's okay. But please, make sure it's somewhere. I'm going to pray for us. And we're going to come back to worship. And we'll share communion together.